Good morning. This is lesson seven in the series on the book of Hebrews, and this message is called Greater Than Moses. But I want to go, first of all, to the Inquisition. Uh, I, I received three questions. I'm hoping in the future, in the following Inquisitions that come, I'll get more. But let me take the first three questions that were raised. Question number one, do angels die? That question originates from a misstatement that I made in Lesson 3 related to verses uh, 5 through 14, and in particular, verses 10 through 12. In those verses, uh, our Lord is spoken of as the Creator, and He is the one who is eternal, who lasts forever, but the creation passes away. In my enthusiasm, I somehow threw angels into that mix, and nowhere in Scripture do you find a text which says angels will pass away. Angels are created beings. They have a point of beginning, but they do not have, so far as Scripture tells us, that I have found a point of termination. So there is a kind of angel hell, if you would, that will be for eternity for those angels that have rebelled against our Lord Jesus. So no, angels do not die, so far as I know. B, does salvation in chapter 2, verse 3, mean justification? Remember, the text says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And it seems to me that we, we have to say that it includes justification, but that that is not the focus of it. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 14, it, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits, that is the angels, sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation? So that salvation there is looked at in the future tense. It is looked at as that inheritance that we are going to possess as believers, but it is not, it is not focused uh, specifically on our justification and, and retained to that, even though our justification is the basis for what we will receive in the future. And notice also that it talks about that which was spoken through the angels, So that when he is in this context, he is saying, we need to listen to what the Son has said. We need to listen to his word. So it seems to me that the word salvation here is almost equivalent to the gospel. It is the message of salvation, but it is that which is spoken uh, that is the emphasis of a writer. So it includes justification, but that word salvation, as we all know, has a broader sense, and it seems to me that it would apply in this text, in in chapter 2, verse 3. A more interesting question is, I shouldn't say more interesting, one that fascinated me is the question, what is the nature of the bondage to which men are subject because of the fear of death in chapter 2, verses uh, 14 and 15? We might just take a look at that for one second. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise shared in their humanity so that through death he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. 
I looked pretty carefully at all the commentaries, and it was interesting to me that everybody just sort of either assumed we knew what that meant or tiptoed past it without really going into detail. And so the question in my mind was, well, how are people, it's a good question, how are people in bondage to the fear of death? There are some people who, because they understand or they fear there is a day of judgment, there is an eternity coming, they may be in, in, in a certain kind of mental bondage. But how does that in some way uh, make them under Satan's grasp? How does that put them into bondage? Now, I'm going to try something on you that I'm not sure is true, but I think there is application to say that the fear of death in an unbeliever certainly has a, 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 a restrictive uh, element in their lives. That may be what the text is talking about. Try something else on just for, 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 for laughs. The fear of death. It, there's two ways of looking at that, uh, of. It, it, there's an objective way, I fear that. Or there is the fear which death produces. Now, I'm, I'm going to be thinking about that for a little bit because death does produce fear. And here's my illustration. When I go back to Genesis, and God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, we know there's physical death that's going to come, right? Would we not all agree that spiritual death occurred the moment that man sinned? What is the first thing that Adam did, Adam and Eve did? They went and they hid. God sought them out, and God said to them, why were you hiding? And Adam said, I was afraid. I was afraid. See, if, if death is the separation from God, then isn't there a sense in which with that separation from God, not only comes a lack of communion and fellowship with him, but a dread of him. And so here in the garden, you have Adam and Eve literally hiding in the bushes not to see God because of the fear which death produced. And if that is so, then I can see how Satan holds men in bondage because he has men afraid of God, literally flee, fleeing from God rather than fleeing to him. That's why Paul says there's none, or quotes, there is none who seeketh after God, not even one. So I'm going to be thinking about that. Maybe you ought to think about it too. I may be wrong, but it may be that men are held in bondage by the fear which death causes. That's my, that's my best answer for now. Now, let's go from good to great. I'm not going to hear Jim Collins this morning, but uh, I was thinking about my friend Fred, who... Uh, in his days of poverty, could not afford fine uh, instruments. He later, by the way, had one of the finest trombones made, and they lost the slide. I don't know what happened to it, but he had this really neat trombone. But in his early days, he went to a hawk shop, and he bought himself a battered, beat-up old trombone, and he learned to play it, sort of. And, and so one day, somebody in a small church had the courage to ask him to play for church. And, and so Fred works his way through this, this particular number, and, and a guy comes up to him and, and starts engaging Fred about his technique and, and whatever. And, and Fred's kind of thinking, you know, I'm really doing pretty good here. 
And then he recognizes this guy as one of the great trombonists of all time. And he realizes, I'm not so good after all. And I was thinking that that's the way Moses is. You know, Moses is really good. Wouldn't you agree? Moses is good. But he is not great. Not great in the sense of the sun. When you put good in the presence of great, good looks a lot less good than you might think. But let's talk about the importance of Moses as we see him in Scripture. Because it seems to me that is, that is presupposed, and especially if you see some kind of Jewish-Hebrew overlay uh, to the book of Hebrews, then it's, it's obvious that you've got to come to terms with how good Moses is. So, for instance, you see his divine calling and then his protection. Not many people uh, go through the kinds of things that Moses did at his birth. They were literally a basket case and, and saved by the king's daughter and, and, and brought into the palace and all of that. And, and not many people have, have had a conversation with a burning bush. So I, I would say that's doing pretty well. Uh, as, as, as conversions and so on and callings go, it's pretty good. Don't want to minimize that at all. At the Exodus, you have a bold confrontation of Pharaoh, the most powerful political figure on the face of the earth, and here's this fellow comes from nowhere. And, and I've told you this story before, and one of the commentaries had it, but it's so good. Pharaoh says to Moses, why in the world should I listen to you? And Moses says... Well, I was talking to this bush. <laughs> Somehow that just, it just doesn't give you the oomph that you, that you thought it might. But here he stands and he says to this man, let my people go. And then you have the plagues uh, that take place as a result of the word of Moses, a great man. Moses the mediator. Here I'm thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 5. But you remember when, when God presents himself on, Mount, on, the, on the mountain and he presents the law, the people are so terrified of God, they say to him, look, you go up and talk to God and you come back and tell us what he said, that's mediation. That's mediation. A great mediator between God and men. His role in the reception of the law, he was the great lawgiver, as we know. Significant ministry on his part. Great military leader. We see the battles that the Israelites fought. They're holding Moses' hands up. Obviously, God used him in a powerful way in military matters. He was a judge and an arbitrator. I'm thinking of Exodus chapter 18, where Jethro comes along. He realizes that Moses is spending all of his time uh, dealing with all these cases. And he says, "I, I think you need to do a little delegating here. But, but Moses was, was like a judge in that he arbitrated and dealt with the cases of the, the Israelites as they brought them to him. He is an author. If you look at the first five books of the Pentateuch, the Bible, then you would realize that he is, is also a great man in that sense. And he is great as a faithful intercessor for Israel. If it were not for Moses, humanly speaking, if it were not for Moses and his human intercession, Israel would have been just a blot on the map. Remember, it starts in Exodus 32, golden calf. God says, I'm going to wipe this people out. I'll make a whole new race through you and whatever. And, and, and Moses says to God, you, you made some promises. 
Your reputation rests on your completing what you have begun and what you have said you will do. The thing I think that we don't probably take into account enough is when you come to Numbers chapter 14 and the whole incident with Kadesh Barnea, it seems like what God is saying is, he says, this has happened these 10 times. And and at Kadesh Barnea, God says to Moses again, almost the exact same words as Exodus 32. I'm going to wipe this people out. I'm going to make a whole new nation through you. And Moses comes up with the same thing. But the text says that God said these 10 times. I take it, therefore, that at least 10 times Moses has interceded on behalf of Israel and it has been his intercession that has spared the nation from a human uh, perspective or point of view. Great as an intercessor. And then as a prototype of the Messiah. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Remember, he said, God will raise up a prophet for you like me. So he is the prototype of the coming Messiah. What a great man uh, Moses is. Now look at the divine assessment of him from a couple of texts. The text in Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, comes in the context of of Miriam and Aaron saying to Moses, How come you think you're so hot? How come you think that God speaks only through you? Now here's God's answer. He says, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak with him in a dream. My servant Moses is not like this. He is faithful in all my house. That's the expression that gets picked up in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5. With him I will speak face to face, openly and not in riddles, and he will see the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Pretty good credentials, wouldn't you say? God's saying, yes, there are lots of prophets. There is not any prophet like this. Great, greatest prophet. And we have to then go back to Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. In response to this criticism of Miriam and Aaron, we read these words in Numbers 12, 3. Now the man Moses was very humble. Some translations say meek. The meekest man on the face of the earth. Isn't that something? Moses was great, but he understood who he was. He never forgot that God was using human weakness to show his strength. And then Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 12. No prophet ever again arose in Israel like Moses, who knew the Lord face to face. He did all the signs and wonders the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and the whole land. And he displayed great power and awesome might in the view of all Israel. From an Old Testament perspective, Moses is a great man. And then we see him in the days of our Lord. You can see in Matthew chapter 17, another text, Moses and Elijah are the two men that are there at the transfiguration. That's certainly an honor, I would take it. In Matthew 23, verse 2, remember the scribes and the Pharisees, they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, that tells us about them, that they have, they have almost uh, asserted themselves into this super authority position. But my point is, they understood the chair of Moses to be authoritative and powerful. Whether they usurped it or not is another question, but that is a reflection, I believe, on Moses and his greatness. 
Unfortunately, Moses is the one in whom many of the Jews had placed their hope. In John chapter 5, verse 45 and 46, he says, Do not suppose that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have placed your hope. And then he goes on to say, If you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Moses himself would be telling you, I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the one to come. But they had placed their faith in Moses, wrongly so. John chapter 6, Jesus tells them, It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but my Father. And, And again, my point there is, they were giving Moses more credit than was due to him. It wasn't Moses' greatness. It was God's greatness. He provided the bread in the wilderness. Moses is the instrument. But they had somewhat lost sight of that. Remember in John chapter 9, oh, I love that chapter, the blind man, the born, man born blind. And, and, uh, and then he, uh, he says, in effect, that you haven't chosen to be his disciples too, have you? Well, that really set things off. But they say, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. And that was really true. They had chosen to follow Moses rather than to follow Christ. A sad, sad thing. So now let's move to our text. With that kind of background, all of this is a way of saying... Moses was a good man, and Moses was a great man, but he was just a man. And now when you look at Moses as as sort of the benchmark in Jewish eyes, it doesn't get better than Moses. Okay? It doesn't get better than him. But I guess he's sort of the Michael Phelps. Uh, of, of in the old, isn't that right? I think I got that right. You know, where you, how could you get better than that? And, and now, if you take Jesus and you compare him to Moses and show him to be infinitely greater, then obviously that magnifies the greatness of our Lord Jesus. And I believe that's what the writer is doing. So in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partners in heavenly calling, take note of Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. Note the context. Therefore is pointing you back. It's almost as though these verses, which are a, uh, a, a sort of an expansion of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. After expounding on the greatness of our Lord, he's saying, we should listen to him. And now I think he's saying, in effect, the same thing. Look to Jesus. Consider Jesus. He ought to be the focus. Not Moses. Not other great men. Jesus ought to be the one to whom we look. And it will be, chapters 3 and 4 then, are going to be an expanded exhortation uh, in application of the things that the first two chapters have set forth for us. Notice the recipients. They are assumed to be saints. I'm not going to do as I did before and go all through Hebrews. I'm only going to say, look at what he says in chapter 3. So surely what he says in that if statement in verse 6, surely that has to be understood in the light of they are holy brethren. Now, one of the things some people will say is when Paul uses the word brothers or, or, or other people use the word brothers in the synagogues, they're talking about fellow Jews. Okay, I'm I'm cool with that. Sometimes that's true. He calls them holy brethren. 
That means they're brethren within the community of faith. And then he adds to that, they are partners in the heavenly call. These are not people on the outside looking in. These are people on the inside uh, within the community of believers. That is, that is the assumption he makes about the church. And then it says that Jesus is the apostle and high priest whom we confess. So again, he's saying, this is the one in whom you have professed your faith and your trust. All of that seems to say to me, this exhortation is being addressed primarily to believers. That's the focus of this, not someone else. Take note of or consider Jesus. Uh, I think it was Dr. Johnson who said this could be the, the summary of the message of the book of Hebrews. In fact, it could be the summary of the whole New Testament. Could it not? Look to Jesus. What else do you need to say? If you had only three words to summarize the essence of what Hebrews and the gospel is about, it's look to Jesus. He's the one who ought to be our, our point of focus He's the one that we need to come to know more intimately. He is, he says, an apostle and a high priest. Now, I believe that Moses was both of those things too. He was sent. An apostle is one who was sent. And and Moses was one who was sent to Pharaoh, sent to lead the Egyptians. And, And so in many ways, you can see the parallel between Moses and our Lord Jesus. But he's the great apostle, if you would. He's the apostle with a capital A uh, as opposed to other apostles. And he is the high priest. And Moses, while he was not a priest, Aaron was, as you know, the high priest. But Moses was the one who, remember, would sprinkle the blood and so on. And so Moses had priestly, he did some priestly kinds of things as well. So it's our Lord that has the same uh, functions, but to a much uh, higher degree. Look at verse 2. Now we see Jesus compared with Moses. It says, Who is faithful to the one who appointed him, as Moses was also in God's house. So before he contrasts the two, he wants to point out the similarity. Moses was a great man. Moses was, in a way, an apostle and a priest. But our Lord is the greater one. But both of them were faithful. So there's the common ground that he is going to make uh, as he starts out. But when we move to verse 3, now we begin to come to the areas of contrast. And that's the focus of the author. Verses 3 and 4. For he has come to deserve greater glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house deserves greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, the house, when you look at the Old Testament, the house or the household was often used with reference to the nation Israel. In the New Testament, we would say it was used of the household of faith, those who are the community of believers. But what he's saying is there's a world of difference between the house and the one who builds the house, right? There's that magnitude of of, of higher uh, level of greatness for the builder than the house. The house is the product. And interestingly, he includes Moses as a part of the house. In other words, God is the builder of Moses. If you want to put it in, in, in other terms, he made Moses. So who's more awesome? 
the one that is made or the one who is the creator. And that's the argument that he makes here. Boy, there's an interesting thing that the author is doing because he is telling us about Jesus by the different words that he uses. Notice he says that we're to consider Jesus in in verse 1, and then he talks about the builder of the house is God. So what he's saying by inference is Jesus is the builder of the house. Is that not right? It's Jesus who's being compared to Moses. Moses is the house. Jesus is the builder. And then he goes on to say the builder is God. Jesus is God. He's not done. That's just for starters. Look at verses 5 and the first half of verse 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to those things which would be spoken. That's what Jesus was saying. Moses spoke about me. He foretold me. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. So look at the contrast. Moses is faithful in God's house. Jesus is faithful over God's house. Would you not agree being over is higher than being in? He is superior in that realm. He is, Moses is faithful in all of God's house as a servant. And Christ is faithful over his house as a son. I, I, was, I listened to read, uh, Ray Stedman's message, and he was talking about being in Montana as a child. And, and uh, he had a friend whose father was a workman on a large ranch. And he said when they would go to the ranch, of course, they were restricted to the, to the bunkhouse and, and, and whatever the, the, the ranch hands' quarters would be. And, and he said when they went horseback riding, they rode the old nags. And he said, later I got to be friends with the owner's son. Now no more bunkhouse. Now you had the free run of the house. You, had, you rode the, the best horses. You got all the best of everything. There is a difference between being a servant and being a son. And Jesus is the son. But notice now he is called Christ. So now what we have is Jesus is God and Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. So all of those things are being brought together and to add to it, he is also the son. So these things are brought together in this package of who our Lord is and his greatness. Now to the problem. The if <laughs> in verse uh, 6, uh, in verse 6b. We are of his house, that is of the community of faith, if in fact we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope we take pride in. All right, so we've, we've finally come down to the ifs. And here's what I, I have to say to you. Number one, we, we need to be careful in our thinking that we don't assume that the only ifs we ever find are in Hebrews. The reason why we struggle with the ifs in Hebrews is when we come to chapter 6 and we come to chapter 10 and you, you're looking at the consequences of those ifs, they look really serious. But But... But look at these texts. I've just pulled out some of these, and I'm just going to just pan through 
uh, a few of those texts uh, to give you an example of the ifs that come elsewhere in the New Testament. So this is not some strange, shocking, uh, new thing that we've never faced before in the New Testament. It's all over the place. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, the top quote in that, in that frame. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. That's a pretty good-sized if, wouldn't you say? Uh, and then in the next frame, look at uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy without blemish and blameless before him, if indeed you remain in the faith, established and firm, without shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Another if. Let's take a look at the, the next frame in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. So get rid of all evil and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, and yearn like newborn infants for pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up to salvation, if you have experienced the Lord's kindness. So when you look throughout the New Testament, it isn't just Hebrews that poses the if question, and and therefore we've got to deal with it, whether we deal with it here, we deal with it there. We've got to come to terms with it. And I'm not going to obviously try and answer everything, but let me give you some preliminary responses to the, the big if. I've said already there are a lot of other ifs in the New Testament by other writers. But secondly... The author assumes the best of his readers. That's what I tried to point out in chapter 3, verse 1, that when he speaks about these, these, these people, the recipients of his letter, they are holy brothers, not just brothers. They are participants or partakers or partners in the heavenly calling, and they have a common confession of our Lord Jesus as apostle and high priest. I don't know how to say it any other way than these people, at least the bulk of them, are assumed to be believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. So whenever we come to an if, we we need to say to ourselves, what is his assumption about these people? And, And I think it's clear here as elsewhere when the ifs occur. Thirdly, this epistle is written to a church... And thus we can't assume that everyone's a believer. When you are speaking to a large group of people, you don't know, or even a small group of people, you don't know with confidence what the spiritual reality is uh, represented in, in that group of people. And that is why when we have the Lord's table here, you will often hear one of the men say something like, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, then we urge you to do that. The assumption in any group is there could be an unbeliever there. And so you you never leave an unqualified statement. Let me put that in different terms if I can. I've been to some funerals that were very distressing. And and I remember years ago, Bill McRae and I went to a funeral together, and, and it was horrible. It was really terrible. In the sense that it was, what you came away with is, we're all going to go to heaven. All the texts that were read that are promised texts of the eternal future of believers were read as though everybody in that group had a right to claim those as their own possession. And we walked out and Bill said, it isn't what he said, it's what he didn't say. 
that was so bad. And, 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 and so it would be wrong, would it not, for our author to make statements to a group of people among whom there may be unbelievers and, and never raise the question of whether or not they have come personally to experience that. It just needs to be done. It's not something that we ought to agonize about. In fact, we ought to rejoice about it. The gospel is presented to people who are lost as well as presented as a joyful possession of those who are saved. Fourth, he's not teaching salvation by works. He's not saying, if you do this, that's how you're saved. He's saying, if you are saved... There are evidences of that. And one of the evidences of a believer is that they persevere. And so this is simply an indication of the reality of someone's confession. And there may well be people in any body of believers who really assume or presume that they're in the household of the faith and then at some point in time they come to realize, you know what, everybody else around me, they really possess that, but I didn't. Uh, he's talking about those things that ought to mark, that ought to, that ought to characterize the believer. And one of those characteristics is perseverance. Fifth, this statement assumes human weakness. Now, what I mean by that is our human weakness. We do not know, we do not know as mortals what the condition of another person's soul is. Do we? Now, there are certainly some people who we, we don't stay up nights agonizing about their, their spiritual state and their relationship with the Lord. But look, when we look through the, the Old Testament, for instance, you look at a guy like Saul and you look at people like Samson and, and whatever and you're saying to yourself, are these guys in or out? You know, I mean, you just come away with this uneasy, queasy feeling about where they stand. And, and we're not saying they're not saved, but neither do we want to say to them, as it were, if they came to you and Samson says, I'm kind of worried about my eternal future. Well, Samson, of course you're saved. You know, you got to say, well, here's the characteristic of what a believer looks like. I, I, I haven't had that happen very often, but I remember one time in particular... Uh, an unbeliever was there, and, and he, he had been attending church and doing all these things. And I just said to him, if I were a doctor and I were looking at your vital signs, you'd be dead. You don't, have, you don't rejoice in what the Lord has done. You don't rejoice in his word. You don't rejoice in the fellowship of the saints. You don't care about uh, the, the lost. There's no vital signs. So we don't know for certain. And, and so one of the things that's happening here is the author as he is writing to this group, he is simply saying, because I don't know everyone in that group and because I cannot know what only God knows, I'm going to put out this possibility that somebody out there may actually not know him. And I'm going to deal with that as such. So it's, it's a reflection of our inability to know the hearts of men. And I, I don't think that we do well to assure people about their salvation based upon something they've done in the past, in particular some action that they've taken, as much as to say, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus now? That's where salvation is, in Him. So we turn people toward Jesus, not their own actions. Last point. 
six, I guess that would be. I know it's an F, but let's call it six. The purpose of this epistle is not to create doubt, but to turn our attention to Jesus. Is that not right? Now, I've got to thank Sharon Obrey for this. She, she sort of hung on to that, and, and I think she was right when we were discussing it, is this, this is what the text is about. It's saying to us, we need to cling to him. We need to think of him. Just like chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, if he is the kind of person that we have represented him to be, and he is, then we ought to listen to him. We ought to look to him. We ought to consider him. And I would say, one, we need to consider him above any man. As great as Moses is, Moses did not lead anybody to rest, did he? And in fact, if you want to talk about it in the hypothetical sense of just getting in the land, Moses didn't make it either. Now, I'm not saying he wasn't saved. I'm saying don't trust Moses to get you to rest. Only Jesus will get you to rest. Moses won't get anybody to heaven. Only Jesus will get you to heaven. And that's the problem with great leaders, is sometimes our attention and our affection is focused on those people rather than on Jesus, about whom they should be telling us, and they probably are, and to whom they are pointing. Look at old John the Baptist. Don't follow me, follow him. He must increase, I must decrease. That's what great people ought to do, is point others to Jesus. And so we need to be careful. Whoever the great men are in your life, i got to tell you, great men like Moses fail. And, and it's a sad thing when your confidence and your faith is, is rooted in them because they're going to fail. They may be great, but they're going to fail. Look to him. He will not. He is faithful. If you want to trust somebody, trust somebody who is absolutely faithful and reliable. And there's only one person like that, and that's Jesus. And not only don't look to great men, for goodness sakes, don't look to yourself. I mean, can you imagine after all of this where he's talked about the greatness of Jesus and somehow now you take this one little word, if, and all of a sudden you're saying, now look to yourself. Did you do this right? Did you do that right? Did you say this right? And, and now I'm looking to me. Hey, if you can't look at great men, don't look at yourself. If that's good... And he's better, you know, where you fit in that whole equation, and I fit. So look, look to him. He's the one who can save. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. If you're here this morning and, and you don't know for sure whether you're going to heaven, there's only one message for you. Look to Jesus. He is the one, as we saw in our, in our, in our worship time this morning, he is the one who can take people who have dirty garments and make them clean because he took our sin upon himself and he bore the penalty, the punishment for our sins so that all those who trust in him may have eternal life. Look to Jesus. Christians, when life gets tough, who do you look to? Look to Jesus. Now, I want to be careful about this because there are other people that can be helpful, but let me tell you, ultimately... It is only Jesus. He is the one who can provide. He is the one who can protect. He is the one who assures us of our security. No man will snatch us from his hand. He's the one. That's the message of Hebrews. Father, thank you for this text. Help us to look to Jesus. Whether... It is someone who is outside the faith who needs to look to him for salvation. 
or whether it is someone within the faith who needs to cling to him, may we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.